Second, welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am your host, and Regan DeLoggins will be joining us. Uh, Regan, are you with us just yet? I am. I hope y'all can hear me okay. All right. <laughs> well, before I get the show started, first let me let me again acknowledge that we are listener support radio. Um, we are pleased to be broadcast both in New York City and in Washington D.C. But we need your support. We are listener-supported radio, so we need you to go to the phone lines. We need you to support the stations and support the program. So if you're listening in New York, go to 212-209-2950. That's the number to call to make a pledge to WBAI. Do it now. Do it in the name of this show. You can do it any time, but if you, if you mention this show, um, they'll know that you love us. So uh, go go to 212-209-2950, or you can go online to give2wbai.org. If you're listening in Washington, D.C., go to 202-588-9739, or you can go online to wpfwfm.org and follow the prompts there to make your donation. Okay, and before I really get into the program, first I want to acknowledge last week was a tough week. Um, it was a tough week for me personally, or even a worse week for my wife. My wife had appendicitis and her, her appendix ruptured. That's why I didn't join the program last week but i also know regan you were such a champ last week because the technical difficulties that you were having first with your line and then with the uh the call-ins from uh, both uh, tiny decori and um and eileen jane uh janice were i it was very difficult and you got as much out of those interviews as you could in spite <laughs> of the technical difficulties so i've got to give you and reggie props for uh for getting us through uh the, and that's that's a challenge right we, we are doing the shows remotely um, we're still mired in this pandemic. And, and in fact, it, it, with the exception of the last couple of days, New York has led all states in the nation every day for the number of new cases for over a month. Um, and they finally, I think Florida is finally feeling the impact of the spring break. So now that their numbers are topping, but, but we're in this thing. And I know everybody's getting relaxed and hoping that they can live life uh, in, in some sort of pre-pandemic sense of normal. Um, but we're not there and we may never quite be there. Uh, so we're, we're, we're face, we face challenges and, and some of the, the challenges involve ironing out some of the technical difficulties and, um, you know, but for the most part, we, I think we handle it pretty good and we, we, we have a pretty clear broadcast, but I know you, well, had, we're, uh, I'm also, you know, week. tiny and Eileen are also incredibly busy women. You know, they, they run the org that they, that they run it's 24 seven. So I was just incredibly thankful that they were able to give us any time at all to really elaborate more on their project, elaborate on the documentary. Um, uh, so I, I, though, though technically it was a bit of a nightmare, I'm still really thankful we were able to uh, to to disseminate the information uh, and knowledge that they uh, that they were sharing and raise awareness to the problem of uh, especially of youth suicide, suicide in general. But it's uh, in in some ways it seems more tragic. You know, the younger somebody is, the more tragic it is. Um, so again, for those who who aren't familiar with uh, with what Tiny and Eileen are doing with their Bears program in uh in pine ridge and the documentary that they are so fe featured so prominently on which is the the bears of pine ridge on pine ridge i'm sorry uh 40 minute documentary making the uh the film festival circuit now if you look it up online you can probably you may be able to find during some of these film festivals they offer a free screening um you can stream it online so if you get a chance I, that's how i watch the film and it, uh, it's it's pretty powerful stuff speaking of powerful stuff um, and Regan, have you gotten a chance to watch this this um, um, uh, exterminate all the brutes by Raoul Peck? No, I haven't. It is incredible. It is um, now. If, if you're not familiar with Raoul Peck, he's a Haitian filmmaker who's who's done some incredible films in, in the past. But he did this four point four, four part um, documentary on HBO, so you can watch it on HBO. It's 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 running now. I mean, you you can it's it's current. Um, and of course, if you got HBO Max, you can watch it there. And I'm, and, I, and I'm not trying to prop up HBO necessarily. I don't agree with everything they broadcast. But, but this is um, an incredible piece of work that he's done here, where he uses, you know, you know, history, um, you know, he, some creative uh, art that uh, uh, in his own right, some reenactment, but some incredible photos and films, and uh, uh, and he really addresses this this notion of white supremacy and the idea that anything that isn't um, 
um, white was really slated for extermination. And um, so it's, it's four, four one-hour uh, pieces. And, and if you haven't watched it, I encourage people to watch it because I want to have conversations about it because there is some of the film that's left up to interpretation. It, it's not, you're not being spoon-fed. You know, so there's reenactments, there, there's, there's themes that run through that, um, that are very thought-provoking. And I look forward to being able to have more conversations with folks about it. So um, I don't oftentimes you know, recommend stuff in, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's on television. But this is one of the things that I will say that I, uh, I think people should watch. Yeah, I'm just pulling it up right now, and it looks it looks it looks awesome. Um, I'm looking forward to spending some time with it now. Yeah, and, and you know, depending on how you watch it, usually when they run it um, on HBO, they run it uh, two parts in a row. So you part one and two, and then three and four. So you can you can have a bit of a two hour binge watch uh, at a time, and that's if you're not streaming it on um, on HBO Max. <laughs> but it's it's pretty powerful stuff. Um, and it's not unrelated to what I'm hoping you and I can talk about today. And, you know, look, when we had uh, Bob Henley on a few weeks ago, uh, somehow the conversation shifted. And I remember us ha- talking about how criminalized we are. And, and, I, and I specifically talked about my situation here living on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation, because much of the, the economy is based on us m- um, marketing our regulatory advantages that we have against the state, which means we don't uh, charge or pay state taxes on things like fuel and t- tobacco and that kind of thing. So, so we sell cigarettes and we sell gas, you know, and of course we have gaming. Uh, so those are the three main industries. And the, 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 the parts of the industry that, that do not submit to New York State's regulatory control, m- mainly gas and, uh, and cigarettes, as far as the state's concerned, it's all illegal. And, and frankly, the federal government offers language in one of their federal statutes called the CCTA, the, the Contraband Cigarette Trafficking Act, where they basically say that if a state has stamps on their cigarettes and they use those stamps as an indication of taxes paid, any product in that state that, that doesn't have a stamp is contraband. And that's, the, that's what the federal government says. So they're using state law to determine whether something is is contraband defined by the federal government. Then the state turns around and says, in, in this real circular reasoning, says, well, the federal government says it's contraband. And so where does that leave our territories that are, that, as far as we're concerned, are not part of the state? Well, see, that's not the way the state views it. So for all intents and purposes, everything that we do on our territories or between our territories is prohibited by the state if we aren't operating um, subordinate to, to state law. And so this becomes very, very complicated. But what it gets me to is is the lens that we're viewed in. Because the way that the state gets away with this, they, they never confront it. They never flat out say, well, uh, we prohibit native people from having native to native trade or selling their own products uh, without, we, we prohibit it. They don't necessarily enforce it unless they catch a truckload of uh, product going from one territory to another. But when we make the argument that, no, we're just conducting native to native trade, they said, you're not, you're not operating um, in compliance with state law. So they never view us through any kind of lens that would suggest that they recognize that we are a distinct people. And I'm, this isn't about having special rights. It's just about an acknowledgement. So the state doesn't do that. So they only view us through one lens. I also read a, a, a recent uh, a court ruling where a native company was was arguing a case in in, in court, and they're they're, they're native owned. They they have their, uh, their their company is incorporated under Sac and Fox business charter uh, in Sac and Fox territory, and what the judge said was, well, we don't have any indication. You haven't provided me with any proof that the sovereignty of your nation has been granted to you. That, the, that your tribal council or whatever has, has extended the, the sovereignty of, of, your, uh, of your people to you or, or of the nation. And, and it, there again, you've got a white man viewing us through their lens of hierarchy that suggests that unless we are given a right by a government that the, that the, the state or federal government may or may not recognize anyway, but that we as individuals, our sovereignty or our, our rights have to be given to us 
that we that it's, that the these are not inherent inherent rights and and so we get into a bit of a dissecting even what political systems look like because in a well in, in a monarchy we know where the sovereignty is vested with the crown right or the or the supreme ruler but in, in a democracy sovereignty is oftentimes looked at as a a, a power of the mass it's not the individual it's it's a collective power but it's only wielded by the government that is represented by de- democratic rule but in a republic it's supposed to be that sovereignty is recognized as a birthright and and it's still vested in the individual now native territories we're somewhat um we're more like uh um and i don't want to say anarchy in the few in the purest sense of, uh, of, you know, like uh, chaos or anything else. But, but when, what, an, what an anarchist is, is, is somebody who rejects hierarchy. And that's what our systems were based on. It was based on the idea that, that they were, we're all equal. And even, and as we construct um, governments, for lack of a better word, or, or, or some sort of representation for, uh, for us, those people actually have less rights as individuals because now they are carrying the burden of people with them. They have a responsibility, not authority, but responsibility. So the whole thing is, is, is twisted around. Everything in the United States and in their predecessors that came from Europe was based on this notion of hierarchy. Who has the power and how much of that power is going to trickle down or be allowed or bestowed upon people beneath them? That lens is what, frankly, it's, it's a major problem for Native people. But now what's happening is there's, you know, when we, when white people could see that only black people were being oppressed, it was, um, it was okay, you know, for, for centuries, right? But now more and more, even, even white people are realizing that this abuse of power and, and we, and we see it as it plays out with, with these police shootings, even though predominantly it's going to be people of color who are, who, who are the victims of this stuff, but we're seeing more and more this this power and the way it it, it it is abused and that the power dynamic the whole system so any of us and and, and regan you, you you're in the trenches with this you know that that it's the systems of power that lie at the problems for all of the things that we're confronting of course i mean i think that you know you're you're bringing up so much and and i'm not saying that's in a bad way it's just it's sometimes this feels like such a daunting task to discuss um, because, you know, we're talking about hierarchy and power. <laughs> those are those are such uh, intense structures that have been introduced um, and are so overwhelming. And especially when they become systematic, which it, it, it's even more difficult to uproot because now you're working against bureaucracy as well. But I, I also think it's important that, that folks um, that when we talk about hierarchy, especially colonial hierarchy, a lot of that hierarchy um, also included uh, a commitment to Christianity and the hierarchy that exists within Christianity, which uh, often or at least the bastardized hierarchy that exists in Christianity um, that was that was transposed into communities here in the occupied United States. You know, we're talking about something that is uh, justified through divine right in the same way that manifest destiny was justified through divine right. So when we're talking about hierarchy and not only are we are, are we discussing like a system of power, but we're also d- discussing a system of power that has been justified through a religious zealousness, which is which is in uh, which is an incredibly difficult thing to combat because it is so righteous because people are so righteous about uh, especially when we're talking about you know the early colonial period we're talking about a, a righteousness to access land and a righteousness to kill indigenous people a righteousness to enslave uh, black people you know all of this came from a hierarchy that was also forced upon many people in in Europe as well as part of the the, the growth of colonialism that came out of um, Rome specifically but you know growing over and and insidiously coming to our shores. So I think that we can't divorce the conversation of Christianity from this uh, this this cult, uh, this cult or this commitment to uh, to hierarchy and power. But but then we also have to couple it with capitalism, because that's what is really so, so detrimental um, 
as you know, religious zealousness has has kind of dropped. Of course, you know, most Americans identify as Christians, and of course, this is uh, you know very much a Christian nation. Um, you know, like I don't I don't want to ignore that, but you know, there, there's there's less religiousness in uh, in population as there was in the past. So now we have to talk about how capitalism has its part in power and hierarchy, and how the new divine and how the new religion is a commitment to to profit and a commitment to, um, you know, stepping on the other man in hopes to uh, further ourselves for financial gain. And so I think that like this, this something that like, I don't, I, I can't, you know, I choose not to participate in it as much as possible because I don't see a benefit in choosing profit over people. So I think that when we talk about hierarchy and power, especially the way that it's infiltrated our communities, um, specifically indigenous communities, I feel like it's come from these two roots, which is, you know, obviously the, the core root is colonialism, but one is through Christianity and, you know, uh, which introduced, you know, a lot of uh, toxic masculinity and to toxic patriarchy into our communities. Uh, and then the other is through capitalism, which has introduced an intense sense of individualism to the point where it's been detri you know, it's a detriment to community values. Well, and, and I'm glad you brought this up because uh, to, again, to, to acknowledge um, what Europe was in, uh, you know, during the, the colonial period, it, they were monarchies and the monarchies, I mean, they existed in in what has to be the biggest lie ever told, that there were families that were placed in charge, at, you know, at the top and the throne by God himself. I mean, that's so when you connect Christianity to um, to sovereignty, the word sovereignty is really tied to this notion that the church uh, was recognizing through the through the Vatican and you know and through you know God on earth himself that there were families that were empowered by God to have ruling power ruling authority over others and so that's where this this whole notion of of, of sovereignty comes from and when through colonization and even through you know through the United States you know fight for its independence, they didn't want to become independent of any of the, those hierarchies. They just wanted to create different ones because they may or may not have been part of that royal family. So, uh, and and the, and the flip side with authority that came with the, with the church was this notion to tell people to accept their lot, accept where they are. The meek shall inherit the earth. You know this whole notion that. You may not have been, you know, placed in charge. You, you're not a royal, but the fact that you are in in the position that you are, um, just keep doing what you're doing. You know, stay where you are, know your place, and um, and when you go to heaven, uh, you'll you know you'll sit at the right hand of God. I mean, and there's literally this whole notion of obeying this this hierarchy that that the church was such a big part of establishing and of course there is a clear connection between the church and capitalism because much of I mean, the church was was raking in you know the spoils that they were you know thieving from native people you know throughout south america you know throughout north america i mean this the connection between the church and the and the um, and the monarchy you know, could not have been more clear. And, you know, I, I know we, we always have <laughs> have our favorite caller who who wants to suggest that um, that capitalism ended slavery, which is completely untrue. <laughs> you know, slavery was <laughs> was a tool of capitalism. And in fact, it was, uh, you know, buying and selling slaves was part part of the capitalism. Capitalism I mean, requires enslavement. It, 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 yes. it Enslavement exists today. The carceral system yep. is the continuation of the plantation system. So let's just let's just nip that in the bud now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and but I, but again, so what many people are 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 finding difficult is. Um, is to challenge the notion of hierarchy. That's why we get in, you know, you, you get this whole, you know, pushback against the the, the dreaded S-word, socialism. Uh, even though there, there's so many aspects of, of any kind of government service that could qualify with that, you know, with that label. Um, you know, look, the United States waged an entire Cold War against a system of government that they claimed was evil because it wasn't theirs. Um, you know, so this war on communism, and I'm not advocating communism over democracy or what the United States calls democracy. I'm not advocating any of that. But the idea that that these systems of ideology 
would be worth killing over is is something that uh, that is that is so ingrained in, in a part of not just a European colonialist colonialism, but American colonialism. And, you know, that's the other thing that people don't want to recognize is that once the United States uh, fought for its independence from from Great Britain, it didn't it, it wasn't like they lived happily ever after. It, you know, the United States has be, had become one of the larger colonial powers, and not only in the wake of the Spanish-American War, um, you know, the the seizure of Hawaii, but in the in the placement of, of military bases all over the entire globe. I mean, this this is imperialism. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that there's a there's this growing conversation. Um, and actually it's been it's i say growing because i see more people participating in it but it's been a conversation for a long time which is the what is the military's part in colonialism and the reality is that the military is always and will get, and unfortunately has continued and will continue to participate in ongoing colonialism and imperialism and i really find this to be a something that a lot of people ignore, especially within indigenous communities, because there's this incredible acceptance of um, of indigenous people joining the military. You know, often right. there's this like belief, oh, you're continuing the warrior society. You're protecting your community by serving your nation. You know, there's like this um, there's this very strong uh, narrative within indigenous communities about uh you know about about veterans and also about continuing to join the army and what does it mean as you know i hate the term colonized people but i'm going to use it specifically in this in this term what does it look like for colonized people to be colonizing other people and i don't you know and i don't say this is an easy conversation and i know this will also make some people uncomfortable but but it's but it's true and it's something that we need to unpack and i don't think and i think a lot of these conversations came out of vietnam in which a lot of people realized that you know uh, not just indigenous people but a lot of young young men who were serving in vietnam seeing this as like a an, an um not only an unwinnable war, but rather a an, a lost war where they didn't understand why they were there and what they were doing and participating in the genocide of um, indigenous Vietnamese people. And, you know, th- I think a lot of that conversation came out of there, but I've been seeing it revamped on, on social media right now, especially with uh, this, you know, this trans military bill that was being pushed through, especially with conversations about um, violence against Asian American and Pacific Islander communities, which were, which are still heavily impacted by continued military presence and continued colonialism within their uh, within their homelands as well. So I think that it's really important that we we don't remove the narrative of militarism and imperialism from these conversations about colonialism and also that we that we start to unpack and i'm not saying we do it today but that we start to unpack um the this gravitation for young indigenous people to join military uh to join the military and what that means you know what does that mean as as i said as colonized people participating in the continued colonization yeah and and i think it's really important that uh, that we address this made-up narrative that somehow enlisting in the U.S. armed forces or Canadian armed forces is a continuation of a warrior culture. For one thing, mm-hmm. even that is, that, that's BS. I mean, most Native peoples are, are more drawn towards family, extended family, peace, living peaceful lives. This notion that we are a, a war that we're warlords and, and that somehow we thrive on conflict is that's just made up. And, and look, I understand why people enlisted. Part of it is that w- most of our territories were driven into such abject poverty. There was almost nothing for, you know, somebody coming of age to do. There was no we're also targeted was, for enlist. For, for oh, a- absolutely. Enlist. I mean, you know, even you know, we uh, we we have to listen to this narrative about about code talkers. Code talkers were coerced into the military because after centuries of trying to kill our languages, 
the military decided they knew how to militarize our language and use it so they could, you know, they, they could use a code that, that the Japanese primarily wouldn't break. And when I see somebody post some message about, oh, how our native people won the war, Japan wasn't going to defeat the United States. So let, let's just say that <laughs> flat out. Japan was not going to conquer the United States. The United States was not going to be speaking Japanese if it weren't for code talkers. I mean, you know, these people were exploited for their language. And there was never a language programs. I mean, no, nobody ever came afterwards and say, you know, we, it's really important that we preserve that language. There's conversations about that today, but not in the wake of, the, of, of World War II. You know, so that narrative gets gets you know put out there over and over and over again and look i understand like i said we it's not like we had any kind of jobs program and and coming out of the residential school era where literally our our young men our boys were taught to march and do all of these this military training for all intents and purposes and to take orders and to be submissive to the, this this rule of uh, uh, again this, this hierarchy that's where where some of this stuff comes from and and i think we do need to uh, speak out and and not just the native people look if you're an oppressed person i, I you know i the, one of the, my favorite things about muhammad ali was his strong stance and his ability to articulate his stance on not going into going to Vietnam, and there weren't enough Native people saying the same thing that Muhammad Ali was saying. And, and sure, he had he had a tremendous platform and paid a tremendous price for it. But you know, I still, I mean, his, his words still ring in my ears about uh, about uh, those people never did anything to uh, no no Viet Cong ever called me uh, called me the N word. I mean, and and this, and he actually made the whole connection. He, he he drew the whole thing together. He said they want to send the black man to fight the white man's war against the yellow man, uh, defending land that they stole from the red man. I mean, he he laid it all out in in you know several times, and and I think it's important that people revisit his position that he took on uh, on Vietnam. And native people should should be more uh, more outspoken. And you know, and the other thing that I'll say on that note, the the what what happened in Viet, after Vietnam, post Vietnam, was all of a sudden this idea of um, of praising and uh, military as heroes when they came home, for the first time in in U.S. history, veterans who came home were not treated with this with the same regard. And I'm not saying that veterans didn't suffer after you know World War One and Two and Korea and that kind of stuff, but I think the entire letdown um, that that these People oftentimes they were victimized because they were forced to be in the military in the first place. But um, you know, I think th there has to be stronger scrutiny on you know, as you said, when oppressed people allow themselves to be you know, a part of uh, the systems of oppression to oppress other people. And I, I think about the Philippines, and I think about um, you know, our people going to Vietnam and and, and to into the Middle East, and. Man, I mean, sometimes you look at those people and they don't look a whole lot different than us. And yeah. I think that's that should that should be it should really make us um, think about what we're allowing ourselves to be used for. Well, it also it really it, it it fits so well into this conversation that we're having about hierarchy, which is that, you know, something that I that I really, um, really am thankful for was that that. Uh, when I like as a child, I was always told to question authority. That's something that my mom would always say to me, you know, question authority. And she got me a shirt and a sticker on it and a sticker that said question authority. And it was like my favorite thing. And I thought I was the coolest. And um, and I, I revisit that teaching all the time, um, which I think that has also been instilled into me from um, from my dad as well is this like constantly questioning where information is coming from and who is disseminating disseminating the information and, and how I'm getting this information. And I, I think it's so important that we push back on, on hierarchies and assumed hierarchies. And I feel like often as oppressed people, we fall into hierarchy and we fall into hierarchy play so quickly because often there is a lack of resources or a lack of advantage. So when recruiters come into our, our, our neighborhoods, into our reservations, into our communities and are, are showing, okay, you can join the military and you'll have a career and you might, we might give you money to go to college. You'll be able to travel the world. You know, you're given all of these opportunities um, when, when for so long resources have been withheld. 
and you know, and that's all strategic. And I, and I really, yeah. I really want people to understand that that's all strategic, you know, and it's not a conspiracy. Like this is a strategic way to get people to participate in ongoing uh, colonialism and imperialism is withholding resources and then providing the, the mythos that the military can somehow can give you access to a way out in the same way that you see that kind of recruitment happening in our, in our communities to join tribal police or police forces. You know, you, you see that this overt um, hierarchy and often a patriarchal patriarchal hierarchy is introduced into our communities as a way to get us to join the participation or to participate rather in the continued oppression of other people and often including our own people you know like sure. tribal police are still police you know like they may be they may look like you but they are not they, you know i'm not cool with them so i think that that's I really do. I'm really glad that we're we're you know beginning to unpack this because it all does play into this conversation of hierarchy and why do we accept hierarchy in the first place? Why do we accept authority in the first place? Especially since it, again, if you revisit our history and our culture, and I don't mean history of colonization, this was not our way, and and that's why I began the, the whole conversation with this idea that. That we 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 now have accepted the lens that they've that they've jammed in front of our face to accept this this notion that rule you know or has to be asserted through hierarchy. Look, we're at the bottom of the hour, so uh, we'll we'll take a break and we'll we'll come back. And I want to talk more about that, that's so great that you had a shirt that said "Question Authority" when you were a kid because that's not what kids <laughs> were taught, you know, and and haven't been taught for generations. I also want to talk about things like draft registration. So we'll we'll talk about that when we come back. I'm John Kane. This is Resistance Radio with Regan DeLoggins, and uh, we'll be right back. All right. Thanks for coming back. This is John Kane with Regan DeLoggins. This is Resistance Radio. I want to remind people again that we are listener-supported radio. If you're listening in New York, I hope that you'll go to the pledge line, uh, which is 212-209-2950, and make a pledge to the station in the name of this show. Um, Look, you know, what we try to promote here is that the that the show is the premium. This is what we're trying to give you, and we're hoping that you will support the uh, the program and, and the stations uh, for for giving you this program. Uh, you can also go online to give to wbai.org. If you're listening in in Washington, then uh, go to two zero two five eight eight nine seven three nine, or you can go online to wpfwfm. Dot org and follow the prompts there. I am grateful to both WBAI and WPFW for allowing us this space. I, you know, I did a whole show talking about land acknowledgement, um, but land acknowledgement isn't doesn't fix the problem of being accommodated with space. We have been moved off of lands, and the lands that we are on have been so so much diminished. So when we have the opportunity to reclaim space, and that space isn't just geography, it might be airwaves. So the idea that WBAI and WPFW accommodate us, uh, Regan and I, to uh, to have a space on their airwaves is something that we appreciate, but we hope that you appreciate that uh, that they that these stations have made such a commitment to allow a native voice to be heard on their stations, and I hope you acknowledge and appreciate that, and, um, and show that appreciation by going to those those pledge lines and, uh, and making a commitment to the stations and uh, to the program. All right, hey, before the break, we were, you mentioned, and I think that is just so sweet that your your parents gave you a shirt and encouraged you, and, you know, because. The, to, to question authority. I mean, one of my favorite people in, in the world, Degar Rundege, who is, uh, you know, what I, I, I would consider him my mentor. His grandmother used to tell him, question everything. But this is what we were told as Native people, as Native kids. But others are being told kids are supposed to be seen and not heard. And so this whole notion, and, and again, different lenses, different, uh, different philosophies, you know, when, when I think about what our existence is as Native people uh, and what we can what we consider and I don't even the word sovereignty is not uh, is, is, is the wrong word because sovereignty implies power, not the 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 right and responsibility to carry yourself. But the, the who has the right to tell somebody what they can and can't do 
And so, I mean, I know we have we have appropriated that word to some extent, and and mm-hmm. I and I'm troubled by it. We also have a tendency to to appropriate other words like nation and citizen and all of these other things, and the, it these all create this impression of a lens, right? That okay, what is a nation? We're going to define it with borders. We're going to define it with with uh, citizenship. And what is a citizen? A citizen is somebody who has made a commitment to support a form of government to defend the you know the people and 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 to work for the people. And oftentimes, when I look through many of our native territories, we have people who will identify as Seneca or Choctaw or Mohawk or whatever else. But to suggest that we are somehow citizens of a of a of a governmental system most of those governments were were fabricated by the by the federal government either through their indian reorganization plans of 1934 or through trying to impose you know uh, constitutional requirements and and putting all of these things in in place i don't think most people and, and and this goes even with native people realize how much pressure is constantly applied to native people to conform to their systems and you know this leads me to what i mentioned before the break i mean if you're 18 years old and you're a boy you are expected to register for the uh for inscription to to for the draft and i this is something that, that i've pushed real hard back i i happen to be 11 days too old to have um, ever needed to register. The, the reg- draft registration started for people who turned 18 um, who were born in 1960. I was born at, at the end of December in 1959. But I have talked to every native kid I could think of, you know, peers, you know, people my, almost my own age, but, but going right through. I've always tried to, 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 tell, to tell people, you, you need to push back. And of course, there's a there's a cost to it because there, it's a law, and and there are those that, are, that will try to tell you that you have to by law register for the draft, even if you're native, even though we have not necessarily submitted ourselves or subjected ourselves to to that authority. So, I mean, I think you know my advice to anybody who's who's approaching their 18th year. And and look, they use schools to do this. I mean, the, the schools administer these uh, these draft registration forms. We ne- we need to be better at educating our kids about uh, about what they're going to fa- face as adults, and they have to understand that our lens is different. And 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 frankly, while we're not trying to impose our philosophies on on non-native people necessarily, I think there are non-native people who are saying. Yeah, we have a problem with the hierarchy system too, and that's why that's what you're seeing spill out into the streets uh, today. Yeah, I think that everyone should be able to consent to what their life will look like, um, and you know, and, and of course, that even that statement is so so wrought with privilege that I I almost cringe saying it, but it's but it's how it should be. We should all consent to the lives that we live. And, you know, I don't support the military at all. I don't believe in it. I don't, uh, as you know, as we've been expressing or how I've been expressing, I think it's just a continued form of imperialism. It is a continued form of imperialism. It's not even that I think, because that it's a fact. The, the military is a continued arm of imperialism. Um, and I, I would hope that I would have a choice if I want to participate in violence against other communities. Um, you know, and I, I, it reminds me of the conversation when we talk about like black lives matter and, and people push back and say, blue lives matter too. And the reality is that uh, one is a job that you chose to go into. Uh, and the other is something that you cannot escape. Um, you cannot escape the color of your skin uh, and you cannot escape the oppression. Unfortunately, that is, that is, so violently put on us based on the color of our skin because of systemic racism, because of hierarchies that have been created through these roots of capitalism and, and Christianity this is all interconnected. And I, and I find it to be baffling that, um, that at 18, you have to sign up to participate in the continued violence and into you have to sign up to participate in continued imperialism uh, for the sake 
of for the sake of duty to your country, which is, I think, as indigenous people, many of us, I don't think identify with this country like I don't I don't identify as an American. Um, I think it's actually, I think, incredibly violent when people self-identify me or or, or, or identify me as an American. I, I find that to be incredibly hurtful. Um, so I think that especially for people who have been so marginalized and so targeted, you know, black, indigenous and other people of color who have been so targeted historically by the government to then expect them to serve the government as a you know, a tool to do more harm in places abroad is just an absurd thing to force upon people. Um, so, you know, I, I, I could talk about this for forever <laughs> just because no, I'm so I'm appalled. Glad, I'm, glad brought, I'm glad you brought it up because, you know, I, I think back to even reading the quotes and I'm not a big fan of Sir William Johnson and people can look him up if you want, but he was, he represented uh, the British crown. Um, but he told when, when he, when he was asked about Mohawks in particular um, becoming subjects of the crown, he said, you would not want to stand close to a Mohawk uh, and suggest that he was a subject, uh, you know, a, a British subject. Um, and, and today, I mean, I would never call a native person on the other side of that imaginary line a Canadian. And and it isn't just that it's offensive when somebody assumes that, that you or I are um, uh, U.S. citizens, but they'll actually argue when you tell them that you're not. I mean, I, I literally got into this, This well, did you ever renounce a U.S. citizenship? I said, I never acknowledged that I was a U.S. citizen in the first place. I don't need to renounce it. But if, but if you want those words to come out of my mouth, I'll say it. I mean, <laughs> we actually get into these debates about people saying, well, yeah, well, you, you say that, but, and then they'll ask you whether you have a driver's license. You know, or a social security, or a passport. Card. Passport. Everyone always says that you have a passport. Yeah, yeah. And so this is. So they. It's like they're trying to utilize this again. These other systems of oppression, which which may <laughs> that include things like passports, um, which are which are meant to restrict and to control your 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 ability to freely travel. So I mean, we we get into these in, into these debates, and and I and again I come back to to understanding even as I look on our own territories, and and you and I have talked about this before. Our our territories themselves become systems of that oppression, because. You know, as you mentioned earlier, we've got, uh, you know, we've got a dozen churches uh, on our territories. You know, we've got, you know, we have army recruiters that come onto our territories. We've adopted governments that look like their governments. They're not our traditional governments that that opposed hierarchy. And we end up with, we, we utilize the court systems outside, which are, again, they're never going to view us. Most territories, even that, that have, um, quote unquote, tribal police. They don't have a penal code. They're only they're only enforcing state or federal law, and so this is the challenge. We we you know so even as we try to maintain some sort of, maintain some sort of distinction as as native people, we do it only you know very shallowly. And you know so like you said, we uh, look at a tribal police officer. They may have the same you know looking face as us. But the uniform's not ours. The, the 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 heat that they're packing on their side, whether it's a billy club or a, or, a, or you know or a pistol, that's not the way we conduct ourselves. And yet we we see now, and it's it's really been interesting over the last few days because not only did you have that that um, um, I think the army colonel or whatever that was uh, pepper sprayed and abused by white police officers, even though he was in military uniform. But you had that, and then I saw another piece in South Carolina where a drill sergeant um, was harassing a a young black man who was walking through his neighborhood, and so you you see the the, the race and the military role in in oppression, um, and in the case of the 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 uh, the army uh, uh, a guy who was pepper sprayed and abused by uh, by the police, that. Even in, in spite of the military uniform that he was wearing, um, the the color of his skin uh, took took precedence in uh, in creating that you know that tension. Yeah, I mean we can't escape. I mean we we can we will. Let's clarify. But 
we can't, what I was going to say is we can't escape the hierarchies, but the reality is we can, and we will escape the hierarchies that have been pushed, uh, pushed up against us. But I think that it's so important that we talk that, that people understand that hierarchies are intersectional, which usually when we talk about intersectionalities, we talk about, um, feminist intersectionalism and it's a positive thing where you include, you know, queer rights at the same time that you talk about black feminism at the same time you talk about indigenous feminism and disability feminism. And you, and you talk about the intersections of those and it's meant to be a positive thing. But, but when we talk about intersectional theory, we can also transpose it onto less positive things. And there are intersections of hierarchy in which how does patriarchy intersect with racial hierarchy and how does that intersect with class hierarchy and how does that intersect uh with with a number of other <laughs> with a number of other hierarchies institutional I, aggression like police and, and military exactly so and and yeah. i think i i appreciate the examples that you're bringing up because we we see how those hierarchies are exercised specifically by the police in violent in violent ways specifically when they target black people and you know of course if you know folks are unaware another young black man was murdered right outside of Minneapolis uh Duante Wright was murdered just a couple days ago um and so and you know this is just blocks away from uh, where George Floyd was murdered uh blocks away from where Alton Sterling was murdered so we're, we're t- you know there's there are these conversations to be had um where we can see the intersections of these hierarchies playing out in the most horrible way. And the people who are going to see the fallout of those intersections are often uh, black and indigenous people and specifically black and indigenous people of lower class strata. So Mm -hmm. I think that we need to talk about how all of these intersecting hierarchies really play out because it's always violent and it's always genocidal. And I think that people often are like, oh, you know, like hierarchies, how horrible, but but what can we do? And the reality is we have to usurp them and really break away from the hierarchical system and, and, and reintroduce de- decentralized methodologies, which a lot of those decentralized methodologies are come from black and indigenous teachings. So, you know, we're talking about a complete upheaval of what people have uh, have been trained to think as the right the right way, which is the 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 patriarchal way, the white supremacist way, uh, the capitalist way, the colonial way, and so I, I don't say that this challenge isn't a challenge in itself, but rather that it is possible because capitalism and colonialism is actually a, a very small part of the human of human history. You know, it's actually an incredibly small part of. Uh, of our histories as well as indigenous people. Uh, you know, colonialism and capitalism is is a small part of, of our history, and yet it has been so dangerous and so violent that it's participated in our genocide. So I, I, I like to, I definitely like to talk about how different, pa- how different uh, hierarchies intersect because we see them exercised on a daily basis and the fallout always is upon the burden of the fallout is always upon black and indigenous people and specifically poor black and indigenous people. Well, I mean, I, and you know, we, we talked about a few examples. We talked about military and police, but, but we see this in judges. We see this in legislators. I mean, when you, when, when you explain to, to a legislator, I mean, and I've had these conversations even in New York, um, I've gone to Albany and met with, with, you know, with state senators to confront this notion of criminalizing native people in, in our own, in our own trade and commerce, so to speak. Um, so they they have a difficulty understanding that that a different system, a different model, a different philosophy can exist in uh, amongst anybody, not just segments of their society, but but in a distinct society. And and th- for me, as a native person, yeah. I look at our territories oh, as good. an There's Pam and what do you? As an opportunity to. Um, Ted, I wanted to, to ask really, you real quick if you had any security. Uh, oh. I think we're getting we're a little getting, bit of uh, Red, yeah, we're getting, sorry. Okay. Sorry, <laughs> no problem. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to, to, we really do need to 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 
ask the, the you know not just ask the question but but provide the answer when it comes to some of these these systems of hierarchy but we we could create the models if we recreated and if we rejected the hierarchies on our territories we have we have a stronger opportunity to do that in our territory so ridding, ridding ourselves of this uh, the hierarchical power associated with whether whether it's tribal councils whether it's tribal police and revisit some of our history we might be able to serve as a model that other people could say look it works there and and I and and so that's part of you know, when you know we could be pessimists, right? We could we, we could really be down about this stuff. But I think it's really important that we we do seize an opportunity and we and we try to affect change. And I'm not saying that if you're in the non-native community, you can't resist. You should resist. And but I think I, I you know I think we have to have we we have to be equipped, I guess, for, for those conversations. But we also have to remind people. That whether they got elected into office, they were not elected to be lords and masters. They were elected to be servants. And we've got to do more and more uh, every day to make sure those people who, regardless of how they were funded you know, in these elections, that they come to realize that, that they have been placed in the service of people, not uh, placed in, in, uh, in positions of authority over people. I mean, you already know how I feel about <laughs> about politicians, so I don't feel like it's necessary for me to jump in on that. But I, I no. do agree. I do agree with what you're saying. It's important we, for we us just to understand pull back on their the role. I mean, we, we've got to reject their their claims to authority, no matter what. Absolutely, we should question authority forever and always. And then push back on it. <laughs> well, and, and question the idea of authority. I mean, you know, so don't just question those people who who are trying to presume authority. But you, we need to understand that it is not the human condition to uh, to live uh, in this uh, in this stratified system of, of of power, of affluence, of you know, of, of oppression. That's not the human. We that was created by people who claim to have authority. You know, and I look at, you know, again, I revisit what what we face on native territories. You know, so whether we're talking about the youth suicide uh, in, in Pine Ridge, or we're talking about missing and murdered indigenous women, or we're talking about poverty in general, that stuff didn't happen by accident. It was policy driven, all of these things. The idea that, that such abject poverty exists, not only for native people, but in, in black communities and in, uh, in, uh, in communities of other people of color, it's intentional. And, and, I don't, and, and at some point, we have to be angry enough about what has transpired to want to make change. You know, because you know, you know, people say that you, you, have to, um, you have to have hope for change. But you also have to be angry enough to, to want to, to, to take the, the risk and to take the chances to, to affect change. I'm with you All on right. that, y'all. Get involved, <laughs> get commit to your community, and get rowdy for the land and your community. Absolutely. All right, I hear the drum beats. <laughs> All right, I want to thank you for joining Regan and I. Uh, we'll be back next week, and uh, we'll stir it up a little bit more then. This is John Kane with Regan DeLoggins. This is Resistance Radio, Yahweh.